0: To the Mad Wild West podcast, kick your boots off and stay a while because you're about to hear the stories lost in time from the people that lived and made the Wild West mad. I know what you're all wondering. I bet you are wondering who is our advertisement sponsorship brought to you by in the 1800s this time. Well, I've got some exciting news. This is brought to you by the Calaveras Chronicle, April 14th, 1866. Here's the ad in the paper. It's a $100 reward for an incurable case. Special attention is respectfully directed to our exclusive manufacture of the celebrated golden balm, a preparation never known to fail in the cure of syphilis in all its stages and used in in the French hospitals for the last 10 years with greatest success. For obvious reasons, we cannot publish the testimonies of the thousands who have been cured by it. But in the innumerable cases in which it has been administered, we have yet to learn of an instance of its failure. Golden Balm, number one, for first and second stages, such as sores on the legs or body, sore eyes, etc. Number two, for syphilic, rheumatism, pains in the bones, etc. Sent by Express to any part of the Pacific Coast. Price, $50 per dozen or $5 per bottle. C.F. Richard & Company, wholesale and retail Druggist and chemists, the corner of Clay and Sansom Streets, San Francisco sole agents to whom all orders must be addressed also agents for the celebrated spanish antidote and preparation warranted to cure gonorrhea there you go san francisco april Fourteenth, 1866 those were some well-needed things i'm sure in the mad wild west all right it's news time let's see what was going on in the news in the 1800s out in the mad wild west this is taken from the arizona miner April 20th, 1864. Pretty interesting story. Here we go. Judge Allen, who with Mr. Van Smith left the governor's expedition in the lower valley of the Verde and went to the Pimo villages, has furnished us an annexed interesting account of the country through which he passed. Says, We parted with the governor's party on Friday, March 11th passing down the Lower Valley of the Verde on the well-worn Indian Trail that passes to the right of the Red Granite Mountain at the junction of the Verde and the Salinas, and thence over the unpredictable divide of the Salinas, some six or eight miles below the mouth of the Verde. The Lower Valley of the Verde is about 15 miles long. The soil is rich and lies smoothly rolled out and ready for cultivation. It is not furrowed by the fierce floods that have torn up the bottoms of the upper and more extensive valley. And in it, there is no trace of lava. There's an abundance of water and aqueducts that could be easily constructed to irrigate the whole valley. We crossed the Salinas and the trail led us across the remains of an ancient aqueduct. At the point where we crossed it was about 50 feet in width at the top and 20 or 25 feet at the bottom. For two hours and a half, we rode along in this site of the aqueduct and the traces of ruins of the city near it. These traces were many times faint, but always unmistakable. There are no walls left standing like those in the Casa Grande on the Gila or those on the Verde above the canyon, which now stand 20 feet high and have half feet thick top walls but we knew of no other equally extensive ruins of a city on the continent. A city six or seven miles across in a straight line with the known density of an Aztec population indicates numbers that may well stagger the imagination and demonstrate that there was a metropolis of the north of the races that mustered to drive the Spaniard from Mexico and save the Aztec dynasty. Beyond these ruins, the trail strikes the Salinas again and then leaves it and crosses in direct line to the Gila. About midway between the two rivers is the remains of an ancient adobe or masonry building divided into apartments and surrounded by an outer wall. It resembles what is called a casa blanca at the Pima Villages, except that it is much more extensive. From the top of it, the eye sweeps over the vast extent of the peninsula between the Gila and the Salinas rivers. The soil is rich and only needs to be moistened for the irrigation to transform from a desert to a garden. Here's conjoined nearly a thousand square miles of fertile soil, smoothed out, and the largest quantity of running water in the territory. Here was the dense population of the past. Here will be the grandeur of the future. The Pima villages are with slight exceptions on the south bank of the Gila and extend along it nearly 20 miles. Casablanca is near the center, and near it is the residence of Mr. White, the agent of the Pima and Maricopa tribes, to whom we are indebted for many valuable facts about these interesting Indians. The Indians cultivate the soil, and the past year have raised 1 million pounds of wheat, 250,000 pounds of corn, besides cotton, melons, beans, and other small crops. The origin of the Pimas is shrouded in the mystery that has thus far baffled research of scientists into the hieroglyphically recorded story of the early days of the Aztec races. Are they Aztec? Have they degenerated from the race that built Casa Grande and the giant aqueduct before alluded to, or are they slowly emerging from the barbarism of a nomadic race? All we know is that for 300 years, they have lived here, patient, plodding, and industrious, never building a wall or making an adobe, living or rather sleeping in low jackal huts whose entrance always points to the east with the fidelity of the needle and the pole waiting for the coming of Montezuma. They have no religion or priesthood and no religious ceremony unless the harvest dance can be construed. The Jesuits never got a footing among them. Their form of civil government is simple and seems adequate to their needs. There are 11 villages, nine principal ones and two smaller ones attached to the others. The villages are under the general management of a chief captain and in some they have captains for the land and for war. The power of the nation is vested in a grand council. The young warrior gets the right to sit silently here by killing a few Apaches and further success gives him a voice and a vote. The chief is not hereditary. Although the present chief is son of the preceding one, he was appointed before his father's death at the father's request and now is the chief, little but by name. Murder is punished or rather avenged by the family of the deceased. Theft is common and does not seem to be punished at all although stolen property is reclaimed whenever found. The law of decent is simple. All the land is owned by the women. A man's personal property is all burned at his death in the belief that it enriches the deceased in the next world. When a warrior dies, the nation mourns and ceremonies are performed. After his death, his family takes possession of the body, and with a rita or hide rope, tie up the body, passing the rita under the knees, around the neck, drawing the legs up into the chin. It is then buried with the head toward the east, and the grave covered with brush to keep the coyotes off for days. The processions are formed at each end of the chain of villages. In this order, first the women clad simply in the tapa, or cloth wrapped about the loins, Second, warriors in the full war gear. Lastly, men on horseback, old men, farmers, etc. The Maricopas, whose habits and customs differ materially from the Pimas, are a much more robust race, and they are vastly more warlike. The Pima has an old custom that compels him to return from a war party as soon as blood is shed for the reason, he says, that as soon as the Apache knows he is in his country, there is no use following the war path. The Pimas have a hideous habit of plastering up their heads with clay. Malicious people hint that it is to kill lice, and others say it makes the hair blacker. Okay, now comes the part where it changes, and here is the whole end of the story, and this is what basically the white people in the Mad Wild West come to the conclusion of the story, talking about how the Indians lived, their past, how unique they were, but here's what it says. On the whole, the people of the territory may congratulate themselves that Colonel Poston has succeeded in reestablishing the old regime at Pima so that seed wheat can be bought and buy flour. So there you go. The typical Mad Wild West fashion. They're happy that they've become at peace with them so they can buy stuff from them the American way. Good old capitalism at its best in 1864 in Arizona. All right, fair warning, today's story is pretty bloody. So if you don't have a strong stomach, you might not want to listen to this one. But what am I saying? You guys are listening to the Mad Wild West podcast. Today's story, we're finding ourselves out in the deserts and mountains of Arizona as the Calvary tracked down the Apache Indians. We're going to pick up the story at a place called Camp Grant there in Arizona, the years late 1860s. So here we go. We were all around the camp, cleaning, taking care of it, as good soldiers do, when there ran a half or three-quarters naked Mexican straight for the door of the commandant's quarters. He was almost barefooted, the shoes he had on being splintered. His trousers had been scratched so by the thorns and briars that only rags were now pendants hanging from his waist. His hat had been dropped in the terrified flight from some unexplained danger and the shirt, covered with blood still flowing freely from a wound in the chest, conclusively showed to have been an Apache ambush. With faltering voice and in broken accent, the sufferer explained he was one of a party of more than 30 Mexicans coming up from Tucson to work on the ranch of Kennedy and Israel, who lived about a mile from our post down the San Pedro. There were a number of women and several children in the train, and not a soul had the slightest suspicion of danger, when suddenly on the head of the slope leading to the Long Mesa, just this side of Canyon del Oro, they had found themselves surrounded on three sides by a party of Apaches whose strength was variously put at the form of fifty or so warriors." The Americans and the Mexicans made the best fight possible, and succeeded in keeping back the Indians until the women and children had reached a place of comparative safety. But both Kennedy and Israel were killed, and the number of others killed or wounded, our informant being one of the latter, with a severe cut of the left breast a bullet had plowed round his ribs without doing very serious damage. The Apaches fell to plundering the wagons, which were loaded with general supplies that the ranchmen were in those days compelled to keep in stock for feeding the numbers of employees whom they had to retain to cultivate their fields, as well as to guard them. And the Mexicans seeing this made off as fast as their legs could carry them under the guidance of such of their party as were familiar with the trails leading across the Santa Catalina range to the San Pedro and Camp Grant. One of these trails ran by the way of Apache Springs at the northern extremity of the range and was easy of travel so that most of the people were safe, but Apaches were believed to have pursued a few men. The Mexican, Domingo, had seen Sergeant Warfield and Mott, two old veterans, on his way through the post, and they, without waiting for orders, had the herd run in and saddled and got out in anticipation of what their experience taught them was sure to come. We made our way out to the ambush site. We were now moving at a fast walk in line with carbines at advance and everything ready for a fight to begin on either flank or in front as the case might be. But there was no enemy in sight. We deployed his skirmishes so as to cover as much ground as possible and pick up any dead body that might be lying behind in the Mesquite or the paloverde which lined the road. A sense of gloom spread over the little command, which had been hoping against hope to find the survivors alive and the Indians still at bay. There was no sound of the human voices we longed to hear. We had reached a small group of bushes, not very deep, running parallel to the road, and not twenty yards from it, and there weak and faint and covered with his own blood was poor unfortunate friend, Kennedy." he was in full possession of his faculties and able to recognize everyone whom he knew and to tell a coherent story. As to the first part of the attack, he concurred with Domingo, but he furnished the additional information that was soon as the Apache saw that the greater number of the party had withdrawn with the women and children of whom they were more than 30 all told. They made a bold charge to swoop down to the little rear guard which had taken its stand behind the wagons. Kennedy was sure that the Apaches had suffered severely and told me where to look for the body of the warrior who had killed his partner Israel. Israel had received a death wound in the head, which brought him to his knees. But before he gave up the ghost, his rifle ready in position at his shoulder was discharged and killed the tall, muscular young Indian who appeared to be leading the attack. Kennedy kept up the unequal fight as long as he could, in spite of the loss of a thumb of his left hand shot off at the first volley. But when the Mexicans at each side of him fell, he drew his knife, cut the harness of the wheeler mule nearest him, sprang into the saddle, and charged right through the Apache advancing a second time. His boldness disconcerted their aim, but they managed to plant an arrow in his breast and another in the ribs of his mule, which needed no further urging to break into a mad gallop over every rock and thorn at his front. Kennedy could not hold the bridle with his left hand, and the pain in his lung was excruciating. Just like if I swallowed an old coal of fire, boys, he managed to gasp half incoherently. But he had run the mule several hundred yards and was beginning to have a faint hope of escaping when a bullet from his pursuers struck its hindquarters and pained and frightened it so much that it bucked him over the head and plunged him off into the side among cactus and mesquite to be seen no more. Kennedy by great effort reached the little bush area wherein in which we found him, dreading each sound and expecting each moment to hear the Apaches coming to torture him to death. His fears were unfounded. As it turned out, fortunately for all concerned, the Apaches could not resist the temptation of plunder, and at once began the work of breaking open and pilfering every box and bundle the wagon contained, forgetting all about the Mexicans who had made their escape to the foothills, and Kennedy who lay so very, very near them. Half a dozen good men were left under the command of a sergeant to take care of Kennedy, while the rest hurried forward to see what was to be seen farther to the front. It was a ghastly sight. There were hot embers of the new wagons, the scattered fragments of broken boxes, barrels, and packages of all sorts, copper shells, arrows, bows, one or two broken rifles, torn and burned clothing. They lay all at the mortal of poor Israel. Stripped of clothing, a small piece cut from the crown of the head, but thrown back upon the corpse. The Apaches do not care much for scalping. His heart cut out, but also thrown back near the corpse, which had been dragged to the fire of the burning wagons and had partly been burned and consumed. A lance wound in the back, one or two arrow wounds. They may have been a lance wound too, but were more likely arrow wounds. The arrows possibly being burned in the fire. There were plenty of arrows laying around, a severe concussion under his left eye, where he had been hit perhaps with the stock of a rifle, and the death wound from ear to ear through which the brain oozed. The face was as calm and as resolute in death as Israel had been in life. He belonged to a class of frontiersmen which few representatives now remain, the same class to which belonged men like Pete Kitchen, the Duncans of San Pedro, Daryl Dupa, and Jack Townsend of the Agua Fria, men whose lives were a romance of adventure and danger, unwritten because they never frequented the towns. It was now too dark to do anything, so we brought up Kennedy, who seemed in such good spirits that we were certain that he would pull through, as we could not realize that he had been hit by an arrow at all but tried to console him with the notion that the small round hole in his chest from which little blood had flown had been made by a buckshot or something like it. But Kennedy knew better. No, boys, he said sadly, shaking his head. It's all up with me. I'm a goner. I know it was an arrow because I broke the feather off. I'm going to die. Sentinels were posted behind the bushes, and the whole command sat down to keep silent watch for the coming of the morrow. The Apaches might double back. There was no knowing what they might do, and it was best for us to be on our guard. The old rule of the frontier, as I learned it from men like Joe Felmer, Oscar Hutton, Manuel Duran, amounted to this. When you see Apache sign, be careful. When you don't see any sign, be more careful. The stars shone out in their grand influence, and the feeble rays of the moon were no added help to vision. There's only one region in the whole world arizona where the full majesty can be comprehended on that text of the holy writ which teaches the heavens declare the glory of god and show his mighty handiwork midnight had almost come when there was a rumble in the weeds the rattle of the harness and the cracking of the whips heralded the approaching wagons and ambulance and the second detachment of cavalry. They had brought orders from Colonel Dubois to return to the post as soon as the animals had enough rest and then as fast as possible to enable all to start the pursuit of the Apaches who trails had been cut at a mile or two above Felmers showing that they had crossed the Santa Catalina range and were making for the country close to the head of the Ravapai. The coming day found our party astir and hard at work. First, we hunted up the body of the Apache who had shot Israel. Lieutenant George Bacon, 1st Cavalry, found it on a shelf of rock in a ravine not a hundred yards from where the white enemy lay, shot, as Israel was, through the head. We did not disturb it, but as much cannot be averred of the hungry and expectant coyotes and the raw-necked buzzards which had already begun to draw near. The trail of the Indians led straight toward the Santa Catalina and a hurried examination disclosed a very curious fact, which later on was of great importance to the troops in pursuit. There had been a case of patient medicine in the wagons and the Apaches had drunk the contents of the bottle under the impression that they contained whiskey. The result was that the signs showed there were several of the Indians seriously incapacitated from alcoholic stimulant of some kind, which had served as medicine for the ranch. They had staggered from cactus to cactus, falling into mesquite. They had lain sprawl at full length in the sand, oblivious to the danger incurred. It would have been a curious experiment for the raiders could we have arrived 24 hours sooner. Fully an hour was consumed in getting the horses and mules down to the water in the Canyon del Oro and making a cup of coffee for which there was the water brought along in the kegs of the wagons. Everything and everybody was all right except Kennedy, who was beginning to act and talk strangely, first exhilarated and then excited and then despondent. His sufferings were beginning to tell upon him, and he manifested a strange aversion to being put in the same vehicle with dead men. We made the best arrangement possible for the comfort of our wounded friend, for whom it seemed that the ambulance would be the proper place. But the jolting and the upright position he was compelled to take provided too much for him and begged to be allowed to recline at full length in one of the wagons. His request was granted at once, only as it happened, he was lifted into a wagon with the stiff, stark corpse of Israel garing stonily at the sky. A canvas was stretched over the corpse Half a dozen blankets spread out to make a soft couch, as could be expected, and then Kennedy was lifted in, and the homeward march resumed with a rapid gait. The animals and men were equally anxious to leave far in the rear a scene of such horror. Without whip or spur, we rolled rapidly over the mesa, until we got to the head of the Santa Catalina Canyon, and even there we progressed satisfactorily, as notwithstanding the deep sand in it. In crossing the San Pedro, the wagon in which Kennedy was riding gave a lurch, throwing him to one side. To keep himself from being bumped against the side, he grasped the first thing he could within reach, and this happened to be the cold, clammy ankle of the corpse. One low moan, or rather a groan, was all that was shown Kennedy's consciousness of the undesirable companionship of his ride. The incident didn't really make very much difference, however as his last hours were fast drawing near, and death had already summoned him. He breathed his last in the post hospital before midnight. An autopsy revealed the presence of the piece of headless arrow, four or five inches long, lodged in his left lung. The funeral ceremonies did not take much time. There was no lumber in that section of the country for making coffins. Packing boxes, cracker boxes, anything that could be utilized were made to serve the purpose, and generally none were used the whole garrison turned out a few words from the book of common prayer man that is born of woman etc a few clods of earth rattling down then a layer of heavy rocks and spiny cactus to keep the coyotes from digging up the bones more earth and all was over expecting the getting ready for the pursuit this was to be prosecuted by lieutenant howard b cushing an officer of wonderful experience in indian warfare who with his troop f of the 3rd Cavalry, had killed more Indians of the Apache tribe than any other officer or troop in the United States Army had done before or since. During the latter days of the preceding fall, 1869, he had struck a crushing blow at the courage of the Apaches infesting the country close to the Guadalupe Range in southwestern Texas, and he had killed and wounded many of the adults and captured a number of children and a herd of ponies. But Lieutenant Franklin Eaton, a brave and exceedingly able officer just out of West Point, was fatally wounded on our side. And the more Cushing brooded over the matter, the hotter flamed his anger, until he could stand it no longer, but resolved to slip back across the country and try his luck over again. He had hauled Heaton and the rest of the wounded of four marches on rudely improvised ambulances across the snow, which lay unusually deep that winter until he found a sheltered camping place near the Picos, where he left his impeded troops under a strong guard, and with the freshest horses and men turned back, rightly surmising that the hostiles would have given up following him and would be gathered in their ruined camp, bewildering the loss of the kindred. He guessed rightly, and at the earliest sign of the morning, in the east, was once again leading his men to attack upon the Apaches, who, not knowing what to make of such utterly unexpected onslaught, fled in object terror, leaving many dead on the ground behind him. All this did not exactly compensate for the loss of Yeaton, but it served to let out some of Cushing's superfluous wrath and keep him from exploding." Cushing belonged to a family which one deserved renown during the War of the Rebellion. One brother blew up the ram. Another died most historically at the post of duty on the battlefield of Gettysburg. There was still another in the Navy who died in service. I do not remember where, and one of whom I'm speaking, who was soon to die at the hands of the Apaches, and deserves more than a passing word. He was about five feet seven in height, active as a cat, Slightly stooped shoulder, sandy complexion, keen gray or bluish gray eyes, which looked through you when he spoke and gave a slight hint of determination, coolness, and energy which had made his name famous all over the southwestern border. There's an alley named after him in Tucson, and there is or was, when I last saw it, a tumbled down, worm-eaten board to mark his grave and that was all to show where the great American nation had deposited the remains of one of its bravest. But I'm anticipating altogether too much, and should be getting ready to follow the trail of the Marauders. Cushing didn't seem to be in any particular hurry about starting, and I soon learned that he intended taking his ease about it, as he wanted to let Indians be thrown off their guard completely, and imagine that the whites were not following their trail. Let them once suspect that a party was in pursuit and they would surely break up their trail and scatter like quail, and no one then could hope to have anything to do with them. Every hoof was carefully looked at and every shoe tacked on tight. A few extra shoes for the four feet were taken along in the pack train, with 15 days ration of coffee, hardtack and bacon and 100 rounds of ammunition each. All that could be extracted from the Mexican in the way of the information was pondered over and submitted to the consideration of Thelmer and Manuel Duran, the guides who were to conduct the column. Some of the Mexican men were composed and fully recovered from the effects of their terrible experience, and those who were wounded were doing well. But the women still trembled at the mere name of Apache, and several of them did nothing but tell their beads in gratitude to heaven for the miracle of their escape. The Apaches were evidently a trifle nervous and wanted to make as big a circuit as possible to bewilder the pursuers. But all their dodges were in vain. From the top of the panal, a smoke was detected rising in the valley to the north and east. And shortly afterward, the evidence that the party of squaws and children laden with steam mescal had joined the raiders and no doubt were to remain with them until they got home if they were not already home. Cushing would hardly wait till the sun had hidden behind the Superstition Mountains before he gave the order to move on. Manuel was more prudent and not inclined to risk anything by undue haste. He would wait all night before he would risk disappointment in an attack upon the enemy whom he had followed so far. Manuel wouldn't allow any of the Americans to come near while he made his preparations for peeping over the crest of the Divide. Tying a large wisp of bear's grass about his head, he crawled or wiggled on hands and knees to the position, giving the best view of the valley, and made all observations. Night was long and cold and dark, and the men had at least an hour in position overlooking the smoldering fires of the enemy, and ready to begin the attack the moment that it should be light enough to see one's hand in front of him, when an accidental occurrence precipitated an engagement. One of the old men of the party of Moscow, gatherers who had joined in the returning war party, felt cold and arose from his couch to stir the embers in the blaze. The light played fitfully upon his sharp features and gaunt form, disclosing every muscle. To get some additional fuel, he advanced toward the spot where Cushing crouched down, awaiting the favorable moment for giving the signal to fire. The Indian suspected something, peers ahead a little, and is satisfied that there is danger close by. He turns to escape crying out that the Americans have come and awakened all the camp. The soldiers raised a terrific yell and poured in a volley which laid low a number of the Apaches. The latter scarcely tried to fight in the place where they stood as the light of the fire made their present perfectly plain to the attacking party. So their first idea was to seek a shelter in the rocks from which to pick off the advancing skirmishes. In this, they were unsuccessful, and death and ruin rained down upon them. They made the best fight they could, but they could do nothing. Manuel saw something curious running past him in the gloom. He brought his rifle to the shoulder and fired, and, as it turned out, killed two at one shot. A great strong warrior and the little boy of five or six years old, whom he had seized and was trying to hurry to a place of safety, perched upon his shoulders. It was a ghastly spectacle, a field of blood, one with but slight loss to ourselves. But I do not care to dilate upon the scene, as it is my intention to only give an outlined description of what Arizona was like prior to the assignment of General Crook to be the command. The captured women and boys stated they were a band of Panals who had just returned from a raid down in Sonora before making the attack upon the wagons Kennedy and Israel. Some of the bravest warriors were along, and they would have made a determined fight had they not all been more or less under the influence of the stuff that they had swallowed out of the bottles captured with the train. Many had been very drunk, and all had been sickened, and were not in the condition to look out for surprise as they ordinarily did. They had thought by doubling back across the country from point to point, any Americans who might try to follow would surely be put off the scent. They did not know that there were Apaches with our soldiers, and they were our guides. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and the crazy stories. And until the next episode, keep your horses tied up. Thanks for listening.